Well, good morning, Northbrook Church. How are we doing this morning? It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. A special welcome to those of you who are joining us in the chapel. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. Like they said, my name is Brian Marvel. I am the senior pastor at Meadowbrook Church, which is a sibling church of yours. I don't know if you knew that you had siblings, but you have church siblings, and we are one of them. So uh, it's great to be with you this morning. You know, one of the things I want to let you know is that I love your pastor. I love Pastor Mike. He is a fantastic pastor. And one of the things I appreciate about Mike is I can tell he's in a season of really trying to authentically follow Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus first, and then lead and pastor out of that place. So you have a wonderful pastor, and it's a privilege for me to know him and a privilege for me to be with you this morning. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, and I invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17 this morning. So when I was 22 years old, I had just moved to the Chicagoland area for seminary, and I had lived there for a few months, and it was a Saturday morning, and I was out running errands, as you do on Saturday mornings, and I was just a few minutes away from getting back to my apartment when I look in my rearview mirror, and I see blue flashing lights. And so I think to myself, well, I should get over, because I'm anticipating that this police officer is going to zoom right past me and go catch whoever is doing something wrong, right? So I pull over and what I find is that the police officer doesn't zoom past me. He pulls right behind me. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is going on here? And my heart starts to pound. My palms start to get sweaty. I'm going to get ahead of this. So I grab my license and my registration. I'm ready for him. The police officer comes to the side of my window and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? And I say, no. I have no idea. And he said, well, I pulled you over because you were doing 55 and a 35. And I said, no. (laughs) No way. And I tell him, I I know that's not true because like two miles back, I saw a sign that said 55 miles an hour and I was going exactly 55. And he said, yeah, but about a half mile back, it dropped to 35. Oh, He's like, you are doing 20 miles over. I'm like, thanks, I can do the math. He said, in the state of Illinois, anytime somebody is doing 20 miles over the speed limit, we have to give them a ticket, no exceptions. So he writes me a ticket, he hands it to me. It's a $250 ticket. I'm a poor grad student. I don't have an extra $250. He said, oh, and by the way, you also have to make an appearance in traffic court. It's like, oh, come on, you gotta be kidding me. So he gives me the ticket, he goes on his way, I go back to my apartment. The traffic court date is six weeks from when I get the ticket. And I have this great idea. Like, I've seen enough law and order. Like, I've seen enough true crime documentaries. I bet I can craft a defense that will persuade the judge to drop the ticket. So for six weeks, I'm working on this defense. I'm rehearsing this defense. The day of court comes. We're in this room with a bunch of like church pew looking seats and the judge is up front in his desk and he's calling people one at a time. He goes back and forth with them and then he dismisses them and he goes to the next person. So eventually he calls me and I've rehearsed this thing in my head. I get up to the front desk He says a few things to me. He asks a few things to me. I don't know what he said. And so I ask him to repeat those things. And I start to get nervous. And then I finally understand what he's saying. And I start to go into my defense. And I just 
fumble through my words. I mean, I sound like a complete fool. And about 30 seconds in, he says, boy, sit down. I will get back to you later. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I go sit down and I'm hanging my head. I'm so embarrassed. Like I've embarrassed myself in front of the judge, the entire room. I just want to crawl into a hole and die. Like I feel in way, I feel like I'm in way over my head. I'm out on a limb and I don't know what to do. Has anybody ever been in one of those places? Yeah. In those places, oftentimes what we want more than anything else is to have someone with us right? We just want someone there because there will be times in life when we feel alone and we just want someone there. So I'm sitting in this church pew looking thing in the courtroom, my head kind of like down by my knees and who should come up next to me? The police officer who pulled me over. I was so excited to see him. Like so excited to see him. I wanted to hug him, put my hands around his neck. I didn't know if that would be appropriate, so I didn't. But I was so excited to see him. He gave me a few words of advice, gave me a little coaching. He said, you're going to be fine. And then he went to the back of the room. So the judge eventually calls me up. I stand in front of the judge. And before I can say anything, I look to my right. And who should be there? The police officer who gave me the ticket. I don't say anything. He says a few things. He has a back and forth exchange with the judge. The judge drops the ticket from $250 to $75. He dismisses it and out we go. And as we walked out, I was so thankful to have that police officer with me because in those moments, what we really want is someone who is with us and for us. And we will all face those moments in life where we feel isolated, alone, we feel like we're strung out to dry, and all we want is someone with us. But what do you do when no one shows up? What do you do when no one calls, when no one sends a text message, no one shows up at your front door? Because there will be moments when you expect and you hope that people will show up and they don't. What do you do then? Well, I want to take us through some of Matthew 3 to show you and remind you that even in those places, because maybe you're here this morning and you're in one of those places, to let you know that even in those places where it feels like you're alone and no one's there, there is one who is always with you. This is how Matthew 3 Verse 13 begins, Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now the context of this passage is that Jesus hasn't yet fully stepped into his public ministry. And the Israelites at this point in their history are awaiting their Messiah. They're awaiting their Savior, the one who's going to set them free and release them from the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. And at this point, The people don't know who Jesus is. Like, they don't know that Jesus is their Messiah. The people who do know are we, the reader, and probably John the Baptist, but no one else knows. And John the Baptist is a prophet called by God, commissioned by God, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And the way that he's doing that is he's out in the Jordan River baptizing people and calling them to repent and confess their sin. And so Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And for those who know that Jesus is the Messiah, we the reader and John the Baptist, it raises the question, why? Like, why is Jesus 
coming to be baptized? What is he doing in his baptism? We wouldn't think that Jesus needs to undergo baptism. And yet you see John in some ways wrestling through that question as he responds to Jesus in verse 14. This is what we read. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to be baptized by me? It's as though he's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on here? He couldn't compute what Jesus is doing. We're not explicitly told that he knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he does know that there's something different between he and Jesus. He does know that Jesus has a different level of authority than he does. He does know that Jesus has different status. He knows that in some way he should be submitting himself to Jesus rather than Jesus submitting himself to John. And Jesus responds saying this in verse 15. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So Jesus is doing a few things in his baptism. One of those things that he's doing is he's fulfilling. Jesus fulfills. He says it is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, righteousness in biblical terms is a loaded word. It's a loaded word with many different layers of meaning. Oftentimes when we hear the word righteous, we think to ourselves that it means living rightly. We've got to do the things we're supposed to do, avoid the things we shouldn't do. We often think that righteousness is moral conformity, moral purity, and doing the right thing. Now, it's not less than that. It certainly includes that, but it's a whole lot more than that. It's a word that has many layers of meaning. You can translate the Greek word that's used here, righteous. You can also translate it, justice. Same word gets translated two different ways. Which means in righteousness, there's this idea of just making. There's this idea of making things right in the world. That's also wrapped up in this idea of righteousness. It's not just behaving properly. It's somehow making broken things right. Another way that you can think of the term righteousness is around covenant faithfulness. Righteousness is a covenantal word. The way that God does relationship with people is through covenants. So righteousness is a relational word. All throughout the scriptures, God is making covenants with his people. A covenant is a formal relationship with another party. You enter into this party. That's what the Lord's Supper symbolizes. A new covenant that God is making with his people. It's this invitation into relationship with God that that you think about that relationship in a certain way. There's certain agreements, there's certain promises that are made. There's a call to be faithful to this agreement. The problem is the people of God have a long history of not being faithful to the promises, commitments, and the covenant that's made with God. Like maybe one of the most notable covenants all throughout the scripture is in the book of Exodus when God redeems his people from slavery. He takes them to Mount Sinai. He calls Moses up the mountain to give him the law and say, Moses, take this law back down to the people and have them enter into a covenant with me. So Moses does, he goes down, he reads the law to the people and their response in Exodus 24 is, yes, we will do everything the Lord says. We will obey. And so Moses goes back up the mountain to bring this response to God, to say, God, your people have agreed. They will do everything that you say. 
And Moses is gone for a little while, and it takes a matter of days for the people to all of a sudden start worshiping a golden calf, going back on what they've just said. And they go to Aaron and they say, hey, you know, Aaron, we should go back to Egypt. Where's Moses been? It would be better for us to be back in Egypt. It takes a matter of days for God's people to revert back to old patterns and not pursue faithfulness to God, but to find themselves in a place of unfaithfulness. And so in his baptism, Jesus comes to fulfill saying, yes, my people have been unfaithful, but I have not forgotten my covenant. I have not forgotten my promises. Even though they're not being faithful, I still am going to do the things that I have promised to do. And so now is the time to begin to fulfill those promises. So Jesus is fulfilling the covenant promises of God. Not only that, he's also fulfilling their story. The entire Old Testament is simply a pointer to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is doing in, their ba- in his baptism is he's fulfilling the Old Testament story of the Israelites. Because if you go to chapter 1, of Matthew. You will find from chapter 1 to chapter 5, the word fulfill is used eight times. It's a very significant word in the first five chapters of Matthew's gospel. And if you notice the way that the word is being used, it's being used when Jesus is moving through Israel's story, moving through these moments that track and retrace Israel's story, meaning when Jesus is born at the end of chapter 1, Herod, who is this quasi-king of the Jews at that time, hears that a baby has been born who is supposed to be a new king of the Jews. And Herod thinks to himself, no, 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 I'm the king of the Jews. Who is this baby that's essentially going to dethrone me? And so what he does is he sends out all his soldiers to wipe out any child two years old and younger, thinking if I can get rid of all the babies, I'll get rid of this new king, and then everything will be okay. So Joseph, Jesus' father, is told in a dream by an angel to go to Egypt to flee for safety, right? And if we know our Old Testament well, at the end of Genesis, the people of God go where? They go to Egypt. Why? Because there's famine in the land. They go to Egypt for safety. Then as you move into Matthew chapter 2, Joseph receives word in another dream to leave Egypt and go back to the promised land. In the same way that the Israelites are called out of Egypt, Jesus is also called out of Egypt. He goes to Egypt, he's called out of Egypt, and then as we enter into chapter 3, he's coming to the Jordan River to be baptized, which could symbolize one of two things. It could symbolize, one, the Israelites' crossing of the Red Sea. Because after they leave Egypt, they go through the Red Sea in this miraculous moment where the waters part, they walk through on dry land. And then from there, where do they go? They go to the wilderness. For how long? Forty years. After Jesus' baptism, he too, we'll see in chapter 4, he goes to the wilderness. Not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And then after the, the Israelites wander for 40 years, they come back to the promised land and they enter into the promised land through the Jordan River. So Jesus' baptism could symbolize both the crossing of the Red Sea, but also the entrance into the promised land, symbolizing and signifying that God is about to do something new. So Jesus comes to fulfill all righteousness and to fulfill the Israelites' story. 
Which raises the question for us, is Jesus the fulfillment of your story? Meaning, is your story caught up in his story? Does your life point to him? Or are you living life on your terms, hoping that somehow you can just add Jesus on as an aside? Or is he the fulfillment of your life story? So Jesus comes to fulfill. The other thing that Jesus comes to do in his baptism is identify. See, not only was it weird for Jesus to be baptized, it would also have been weird for the Israelites to be baptized. Because baptism was a thing that took place in Israel at that time, but baptism was reserved for Gentile converts. It was reserved for those who were outside the family of God's people who wanted to enter into the family of God's people. And so if a Jew, or excuse me, a Gentile wanted to become part of the family of God, they had to do three things. One, they had to undergo circumcision. Two, they had to offer sacrifices in the temple. And then three, they had to be baptized. So why would Israelites need to be baptized? They're already in the covenant family of God's people. And not only is John the Baptist calling for them to be baptized, he's also calling them to repent and confess their sin. But there's already a mechanism to do that in Israel. And it takes place in the temple. The the temple is this place where God's presence dwelt, where people would go to offer sacrifice to ensure that they're right with God. So why would he not be calling them to the temple but to the river? Why would he be calling them to do something that was reserved for foreigners and Gentile converts, not Israelites? I think what this signifies is that there's something broken with that system. There's something incomplete with that system. And Jesus steps into that moment, not because he's a foreigner, who needs to be converted, not because he needs to confess and repent, but it comes as a way to signify and say, there's something wrong with the way you've been doing this. There's something wrong with the way that you've been operating as God's people, and now I have come to, in part, do something new. See, Jesus comes with no need of being converted. Jesus comes with no need of needing to repent or confess, but rather, he comes to the waters of baptism to say to his people, I am in this with you. I have a friend that says Jesus' earthly ministry wasn't just two sinners and it wasn't just four sinners. Jesus' earthly ministry was two sinners and four sinners but also with and among sinners. He comes divesting himself of his power and his position to say to them, I am in this with you. I am here for you. Which also might seem weird if you back up to some of what John said earlier before this moment. If we back up just a few verses, Matthew 3, verse 11 and 12, John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Watch out. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
Given those words, one might anticipate that the Messiah was going to come to sweep people away, to burn people up, to blow people away like chaff. But one scholar says, it seems that Jesus, in his baptism, is identifying not with a God who's going to sweep people away before him in judgment, but he seems to be identifying with the people who themselves are facing that judgment. He comes to say, I'm here with you. I'm here for you. I'm in and among you. And that's our call as followers of Jesus as well, isn't it? In the same way that Jesus comes to identify with us, we're called to identify with him. We are called to divest ourselves of our power and our position in order to extend ourselves to people who are in need. And sometimes I think we need a little help with some imagination around what that looks like. To cultivate an imagination of what does it mean for us to divest ourselves of what we have in order to help those who are in need. Well, I have a video that I want to show you that I think captures what that could look like in terms of cultivating an imagination. It's a commercial for a Canadian tire company, one of the best commercials I've ever seen. And it shows just a snapshot of in one kid's life what it could look like to lower himself to help somebody in need. Take a look. times I've seen that commercial and every time it gets me because every time I see it I'm like yep like that's the call of the church because that's what Jesus did for us Philippians 2 is all about that Jesus lowered himself he limited himself so that he could extend himself to those in need to say I am in this with you so the question is to whom to whom can you be that person Who in your life is in need who you can limit yourself, lower yourself, inconvenience yourself for the sake of reaching out to them? So Jesus comes to fulfill in his baptism. He also comes to identify and then lastly he comes to receive. He comes to the waters of baptism. He submits himself to John's baptism. John tries to stop him. Jesus convinces him and then eventually John submerges him under the waters of baptism and as he comes up out of the water, this is what we read in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water and at that moment heaven opened up and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Jesus in this moment receives the Holy Spirit. And it's not as though he didn't already have it, right? Because Jesus, 
the Son of God is one with God the Father and God the Spirit. Somehow they're all mysteriously one. But in this moment, it's a moment that signifies the presence of God is on Jesus in a unique and special way. For the Israelites, they thought that the presence of God resided in the temple. And it's as though he's saying, no, 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 the presence of God is no longer housed in the temple. It's coming out of the temple and it's resting on Jesus. It's almost like this is his coronation moment as king to say a new king has come. He has arrived and he is going to do a new thing in and among and with the people of God. And not only does he receive the spirit in that moment, he also receives something else. He receives a declaration. This is verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I think those are words we all long to hear. This is my son This is my daughter, whom I love. With him, with her, I am well pleased. Uh, Again, what Jesus is doing here is he's becoming a representation for Israel, a representative of the Israelites. He's going to be and do for Israel what we and they couldn't be and do for ourselves. And so in the same way that he comes to us, he comes to do this with us, this declaration, while it is to Jesus and it is about Jesus, it's a declaration that is for everyone. Everyone who puts their trust in him, everyone who puts their confidence and gives their allegiance to him, this declaration is also true of you. And maybe you're here this morning and you think to yourself, really? Like, really is that true of me? Like, Brian, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what my life is like. You don't know the relationships that I have. I've lived my whole life wondering, does anybody love me? Does anybody care? Does my spouse notice me? Do my parents ever remember me? Do my kids even respect me? I'm not sure God loves me at all. And if he does, it's because he's obligated to because he's God. But does he really like me? Right? I'm sure that many of you here are old enough to remember the movie The Breakfast Club. Right? A story of five kids who all have to spend Saturday detention at school. You have five kids who are all very different. You have the jock, you have the nerdy kid, you have the princess, you have the two that are kind of like gothic and spooky and weird, and they come for the day to spend attention in the library at school. And they come with their guard up, right? They would all be kids who would avoid each other Monday through Friday, and now they have to spend the entire day together. And throughout the course of the movie, trying to get out of detention, running through the halls of the school, trying to break free, their guard drops, and they become vulnerable with each other. And there's a moment in the movie when Andrew the jock, they're sitting in the library, and he starts to really let his guard down. And he tells them that the reason he is in detention that day is because he bullied a kid in the locker room. He hazed a kid. He beat up on a kid in the locker room. And he goes on to say the reason he did it was for his dad. He said, I did it for my dad. And then he goes on to say the reason he did it for his dad because his dad is always telling stories 
with the things he did in school, the wild things he did, the way he beat up on kids, the way that he bullied kids, the way that he picked on kids. And Andrew goes on to say, you know, I, I never really knew if my dad loved me. I never really knew if he accepted me. So I did this for him to prove to him that I could be cool like he was. And then he starts to rehearse and say these things that his dad says to him. Andrew, you've got to be number one. Andrew, there are no losers in this family. Andrew, we win, 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 win. That's who we are. And then he goes on to say, and I hate my dad. I hate my dad. Because he doesn't have any confidence that his dad loves him. And what he needs is a new tape playing in his head. And I wonder who's here this morning who needs a new tape playing in their head. See, Jesus comes to us to demonstrate God's love for us. That's what he's demonstrating in his baptism. Jesus comes to us to demonstrate God's love for us. So I have three girls, three kids, Kate, Emma, and Lucy, 11, 9, and 7. And I have the responsibility as their dad to try and to instill in them an understanding of who they are in God. I'm trying to give them a tape that they can play in their heads to remember who they are. So every morning when I send them out to school, I ask them a series of questions. And they know the responses to these questions. It's the same every morning. I have six questions I ask. The first three questions are, one, we start with this, what's true about you? And they say, I'm loved. I go, that's right. You are loved more than you could ever imagine. And then I ask them, and who are you? And they respond saying, I'm kind, compassionate, and courageous. Trying to help them see that because they are loved, they are called to love other people. And I say, today you're going to be what? A good leader, they say. A good listener and a good friend. So I had those three questions. Every morning we'd walk them to school, we'd say those. And after about a year and a half of doing that, I realized, you know, I should probably add on to the back end of that some understanding for them of who Jesus is. That's who they are, but who's Jesus? And so then over the course of the last year or so, I've asked them another series of questions. We do those three. What's true about you? Who are you? Today you're going to be what? And then I say, and who's Jesus? And they say, he's the Lord. Like, that's right. And what does that mean? Who is he? They say, he's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That's right. And then the last question is, and where is he? And they answer saying, he's with me. Who are you? You are loved. Who's Jesus? He's the Lord. What's true about him? He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And where is he? He is with you. No matter where you are, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter what you're going through, he is in it with you. Not because of your performance, not because what you've done, not because you're great and super and special, just simply because you're his. And so may you know that if you need a new tape playing in your head, go to Matthew 3.17. This is my son. This is my daughter whom I love. With him, with her, I am well pleased. Just simply because you're his.
So may you know that God loves you. May you know that he is for you. And no matter what you're going through, may you know that he is always with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your graciousness. Lord, we confess that as we did in remembering the Lord's Supper, that we fall short, that we are unfaithful, that we are people who are continually in need of your redeeming presence in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask, we ask that you, in this moment, would remind us of what you have done for us, not just in your baptism, but also in your death. And how in your resurrection, you are making all things new, and that's including us. And how in this place, Lord, you're with us. You're present with us right here, right now. And when we leave this place, it's not as though you hang behind, but you go with us because you are for us, because you love us. May that truth sink deep into our hearts so we then have the power and the ability to reach out to others in need and extend your goodness to them. We pray this in the gracious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.